0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Subi Rautio and I am one of the hosts of the channel. On the podcast today, we are joined by Kailin Xie, who is currently working at the University of Warwick, but will shortly move to the University of Birmingham to take up the lectureship in the International Development Department. Kai Ling is joining us to talk about her new book, Embodying Middle-Class Gender Aspirations, Perspectives from China's Privileged Young Woman, which was published in 2021 by Palgrave Macmillan. Embodying Middle-Class Gender Aspirations takes a feminist approach to analyze the lives of well-educated urban Chinese women. The book explores the gendered attitudes young women hold to shed light on what keeps mainstream Chinese middle-class women conforming to the current gender regime. By illuminating the contradictory effects of neoliberal techniques deployed by a familial authoritarian regime in urban China, the book argues that, paradoxically, women's individualistic de- determination to succeed has often led them onto the path of conformity by pursuing exemplary norms which fit into the party state's agenda. I will be discussing the book in more detail with Kailin, who I have the pleasure of joining us from Coventry on the show today. Kailin, welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you very much, Suvi. It's a great pleasure to join you today.
0: It's a pleasure for me as well. Um, I'd like to begin by asking you about your background. Um, How did you, what brought you to write about middle class gender aspirations in contemporary China?
1: Well, this book in many ways reflects my self-exploration of who I am as someone born into an urban Chinese family under the one child policy in the 1980s. I grew up witnessing China's uh, social economic transformations in the 90s, went to university in China, and a job market in the first decade of the millennium. Like many people living in China, the country's dramatic social transformations since the economic reform certainly have left marks in one way or another on our personal life that affects how we understand and experience the world. So I started this book project with a tormented feeling for me personally that perplexed me at the juncture of turning 27, the age uh, from which China state media officially labeled me as a leftover woman. So in the same year when I was 27, I broke up with my long-term boyfriend in China with all my family and friends were so concerned about my future fortune of finding a suitable partner to marry. So at the time, I was determined to look for answers to my questions for, um, what does it mean to be a woman and why, to a large extent, I and many of my friends feel being shackled by this unspeakable sense of destiny that seems to have been prescribed to every Chinese woman I knew. So getting married and having children before being too late, let's say, quotation mark, too late. And there's this really strong sense of uh, you have to make sure things happen at the right time in your life as a woman. So this book records my intellectual journey in the quest of a meaningful life outside of the Chinese societal norm for girls. Personally, I think it is very precious for me, but also risky, but a necessary journey of self-transformation. In the meantime, I want to share these stories in this book with integrity and authenticity as the one-child policy has become part of our history and been replaced with the three-child policy this year and now the country wants to encourage women to have more children. So I think that uh, the issues touched in my book can add something valuable to the journey of others, as the burns of such policy shift is still unfolding. Since personal is always political, in my opinion, the stories and reflections accumulated through uh, through this book uh, within this book resonate with tensions experienced by many women of my time which hopefully it illuminates the social constraints that Chinese women face today. By making this structural constraint visible, I hope that it will help those who work to change the structure for the better. That's why I um, wrote the book.
0: I mean, that, that, that
1: motivation you have to tell your own personal narrative
0: really does come out in each of the chapters. Um, and, and it's something that I think um, is really really brave of you to, to kind of push forward through your text. Um, before we move into um, the content of the book in more
1: detail, perhaps you could tell our listeners um, how you define a privileged woman. My definition of privilege is relatively speaking within the Chinese contents, and I, be, I base my concept of privilege on the different impacts on girls born under the one child policy based on how it, their life is are shaped by China's existing social and economic structure. So first, my research cohort is privileged through their urban birth, and as the, and those of you who research on China, you would know that China has a long-standing rural-urban divide, which has been growing since the economic reform. So this reform has generated contrasting experience for urbanites and rural dwellers due due to their uh, the partial partiality of China's development policies with its uneven distribution of public spending, which has long prioritized uh, urban development. So I think um, for my research cohort, for girls born in urban families, how their uh, their parents responded to the one-child policy uh, differs from those families living in the countryside because of the economic structure. For instance, um, Parents living in the city, often they are um, employed by the China's downway um, system, which is the state-organized um, uh, controlled uh, work unit. Therefore, the state policy have much tighter grip upon these families. So therefore, one-child policy in many ways are better implemented in Chinese cities compared to the uh, countryside. Where at, And at, at the same time, because the uh, Chinese cities have better uh, pension provisions and wealth Fair support. Therefore, the traditional idea of raising a son to prevent old age poverty um, is relatively loose and less prevail in comparison to the countryside. So, parents living uh, in the cities um, have different kind of outlook, um, and the 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 idea of son preference is less severe um, as we observe in the city compared um, compared to the rural area. So, that's the first layer. The second. Um, these girls are privileged through their higher educations. As we know that the Chinese government reopened its universities in 1977, and the higher education in China has expanded at a rapid rate since the early 1990s. So there was this famous uh, policy called Bingui, which is the combination or merger of two tracks, a unification of state-funded and self-funded programs in higher education in China. So this policy was introduced in 1995 and was adopted throughout all the provinces and different types of universities by the late 1990s and early 2000s. It has resulted in a rising number of uh, provincial higher education institutions, which have greatly increased opportunity for participation overall. So as a result, enrollment in higher education rose from 1.15% in the 1980s to 29.7% in 2013. So the combination of the one-child policy and the expansion of higher education has significantly increased girls' participation in higher education, which made the female-to-male ratio in higher education enrollment rose to 1% in 2010. So if you think about the girls born in the urban families and their family, their parents invest heavily into their education because the lack of male siblings competition of the family resources, and they also grow up at a time that China expanded its higher education. So these two factors come together to make really increase their chances to be well educated. Um, but at the same time, there's another layer, which is um, these women are privileged as China's rising middle class. As a result of China's booming economic uh, economy during the reform era, urban households from the majority of the country's new, um, basically the urban households formed the majority of the country's new rising middle class. Which enjoys increasing spending powers and growing influence in society. So most of my participant parents, from their parents' generation, they are already established urban um, household, and then their uh, their heavy investment in their, in their children's education has also provided social capital for their children to further consolidate and establish themselves as um, in the, this kind of advantaged position in the cities. So even for the few participants whose parents are relatively poorer urban residents, their only child's higher education has also functioned as an engine of upward social mobility that enables them to enter and become China's so-called rising middle class. So I think these are the three three different elements, and I categorize my research uh, cohort as relatively privileged within contemporary Chinese society.
0: So in chapter two, you delve into more of the policy changes that you just described through your definition of a Chinese privileged woman. And in this chapter, you consider how these policies have shaped the social and economic landscape of women and families. Could you tell us a bit about this? Um, Could you briefly summarize how these policy changes have generated gender gaps that are experienced um, across different demographic groups? And formed uneven sex ratios in present-day Chinese society. And what does this tell us about um, the Chinese nation and the and the state?
1: Well, you, um, although my book is uh, focused on these so-called relatively privileged women, I think it's also important to locate their pri- privilege within the wider um, economic social structure. And we all know that China's economic reform has really generated a tremendous amount of economic growth. But in the same time, it also dramatically widened the income gap between rich and poor and deepened the rural and urban divide, as I mentioned earlier. So we also must remember that China's uh, reform and opening up started at the same time, that parallel with the, neol- the global neoliberal restructuring, That's happening about the same time in the global economy. So its development policies, despite the state remains in charge of the direction of the market, the deregulation and privatization means the growing inequality within the country alongside of its remarkable GDP growth, they happened at the same time. So instead of a diamond-shaped society with a large middle class in the center, The distribution of wealth in China looks more like a pyramid with very small minority at the top who control a substantial amount of wealth compared to a poor mass at the bottom, which I think is very important when we talk about privilege and privileged women's experience. How do they locate within the larger uh, demographic structure within the country? So um, apart from that, this kind of uh, increasing income gap, there are also gendered effects of economic restructuring in China. For example, the dismantling of China's iron uh, rice bowl that used to be the symbol of China's socialist past meant that during the mass waves of Xia gang laid off in the 1990s, female factory workers were more vulnerable to redundancy and were called upon to return home when unemployment rose. However, the gender impact is never one-sided. The economic reform also has broadened occupational choices as we see rural migrants entering cities to pick up factory works or service type of jobs. Although migration broadened their life horizons and increased their income, rural migrant women often work in low-skilled and low-paid factory jobs under unpleasant if not dangerous working conditions. So there is a shift from, um, we see that the, the, some scholars argue there is a shift from the socialist iron rice bowl to the rice ball of youth, which infuse youthful feminine and urban bodies with values while simultaneously devaluing middle-aged laid-off workers and rural women. Rural women. So you see that these very uh, complex pictures and then you, it's very difficult to say the, whether the economic um reform has brought more opportunity to women in general, but we we really need to dive into the different age groups and also uh, demographic groups um, to look into the nuances. So, um, during but in general, during this period, gender e- equality was subsumed into the market priority of profit, which made women vulnerable to discrimination in various sectors. Even for the, uh, the, uh, the more privileged group that I'm looking at, the female graduate um, in particular have faced increased pressure or uh, gender discrimination when it comes to the uh, job market and job recruitment process. That is nothing new. And this particular issue that and um, has been discussed in more details um, in the later chapter of my book. So as you can see that um, the impact of reform, yes, on one hand, it did um, increase income and brought more opportunities. But on the other hand, it, in many ways entrenched this kind of gendered gap between men and women. Um, And I think another part of uh, this, the bigger picture is that the reform and opening up started hand in hand with the implementation of the one child policy which is um, almost started about the same time. And we have to understand how these two policies relate to each other. As a matter of fact, the one-child policy was designed to try to speed up China's economic modernization program in order to, uh, what well, so-called the slogan says, control population quantity, but at the same time, improving population quality, which is quite telling in this slogan and what how um, what this policy was trying to achieve so as i mentioned earlier the deep rooted some preference and coupled with an an inadequate social security system under on one child policy means that the policy was re, uh, diff, um, received differently by its rural and urban population that lead to um, urban families basically daughter born in the urban family received unprecedented family investment um so i think It is at the same time, within the countryside, we see because of this existing social uh, economic structure, that means uh, there are far more boys born under the uh, one child policy than girls. So China actually sees the the worst sex ratio at birth. uh, which is around 114 male born for every 100 females as of 2019. That is already um, at a time when the state starting to tackle this uh, uh, screwed sex ratio at birth. So you can see that the the number is still quite, uh, in many ways, shocking. So this kind of unprecedented uh, byproduct of one child policy leave a quite um Tremendous challenge for the current uh, regime to tackle in the sense of how can they ensure the s- uh, sustainability of its current development model to ensure China not only have enough supply of workers, but also how can they uh, look, have enough young people a- at work to in order to sub- uh, support its fast aging population. And then when it comes down to, um, women's experience within the current uh, structure is how women, um, how marriage, heterosexual marriage in particular, becomes uh, sort of organize, uh, organizing institutions to manage both producing and uh, caring for the, the China's labor force. And I think that is, makes it interesting to look at women's experience in general um so i think that hopefully this is a painting a picture to for my readers to understand um the the issues of women's so called private uh, issues around marriage and childbirth is actually related to China's wider governing structures of relying on family manufacturing a particular kind of gendered self that fits within its own um, governing structure that rely on family values as we see in the current under Xi Jinping there's uh, this kind of heavy emphasis on um, traditional family values, importance to achieve China's uh, Chinese dreams through um, Chinese values so I think it's very very relevant uh, Relevant in today's China to look into the gender element and the impact um, the p- reform and one-child policy has and how gender becomes an important governing tool to uh, sustain the current um, st- st- stability of the country. Um, finally, I think um, the one-child policy has also left produced in many ways the largest number of China's well-educated women in its long history. So one particular story um, really uh, struck me is, I'm, I'm pretty sure many of you would have a fam- uh, be, become familiar with the story because recently Disney has made, produced a film about it. It's Hua Mulan. It's a classic ancient story of heroine of Hua Mulan who cross-dressed as a man to join the army on behalf of her father. Partially reflects the hist- historical ex- expectation of Chinese women in the past century, I would argue. So as we can see that as a different historical demand changes Mulan's, sacri- uh, Mulan's calling to sacrifice herself also changes sometimes it's just sacrifice for her father for the family other times it is sacrifice for the national community the national families so i do wonder as china is um experiencing a, this kind of demographic ch- changes, aging population, dropping birth rate, what is the current histo- historical demand will be placed on this group of Chinese women would be a interesting things to look at. And I think um, to, to in order to like, to really examine whether the ethos behind Moonland story remains. So what are the historical duties required of the women in my research ho- cohort at this particular historical juncture, and how do they respond? So that is uh, what drives me to uh, carry on my research.
0: Thank you, Kailing. That was really fascinating and really, really interesting to hear you open up all these different themes. Um, just now you mentioned reproduction, and especially reproduction in relation to sex ratio, but in chapter three, you focus more on premarital sex, um, and in doing so, you uncover how it creates new dilemmas for a young woman. Perhaps we can um, talk a bit more about the contents of chapter three to to hear more about these dilemmas and the stigmas attached to premarital sex conduct, and of course, um, abortion as well
1: well to understand dilemma and the stigma faced by women in, in china um and we have to also look at another uh, sort of changes brought by china's opening up policies and, and also the one child the implementation of one child policies because there's on um, many scholars have um, argued that there is this uh, so called sex revolution that is happening um brought by the opening up and the one-child policy. Because if you think about it, the one-child policy's implementation relies on this uh, mass distribution of and implementation of education of using contraceptive measures within family and intimate relationships, which in many ways, it promoted the promotion of youth contraception among married couples, and also, um, how to say, help spread the idea of sex for love and pleasure that's separated from um, reproduction. So in many ways, this one-child one policy also drives uh, the women, uh, sorry, people's Perception of the purpose of sex, and then that some in many ways that lead to this kind of change and transformed social and sexual norms we observe in China. So it has manifested itself in many ways, a so called sex revolution in China, such as there are definitely increased acceptance of premarital sex and the proliferation of pornography and prostitutions, rising divorce rate, and the private permissiveness towards extramarital uh, sex. So um, despite the gradual loosening of restriction on personal sexual pleasure at, and desire, the, the government actually still trying, constantly trying to curb these less predictable social consequences through various measures in order to maintain control. For example, um, there are often waves of nationwide campaigns against pornography and prostitutions, which has led to numerous arrests and debates on the legal regulation of sex-related bribery and corruption among the government officials. One of my favorite uh, news, and sometimes you you go online, you read this news, like in order to um, cram down corruption, it's better rely on the uh, mistress of the government officials. I think it's quite interesting uh, that indicates of this kind of moralization of sexual conduct that is still very much there and alive and within the uh, within the government official discourse. But in in the Chinese school there is very much a lack of uh, sex education uh, in general but um Although there are sort of um, well uneven distribution or provision of sex education in school, but very much this kind of sex educa- education is depend uh, is trying to educate the children to tell them that it is dangerous and it's bad to have sex before marriage, and instead of providing information of safe sex, yeah. So I think, um, but on the other hand, um. The school does not exist in isolation. The kids grow up in a society that there are uh, loosening up of sex uh, attitude towards um, to, towards sex. So you see this kind of gap between moralism and realism, these uh, young people growing up and experience. And... Then on, on, on top of the, the school's pro, long provision of sex education or self-sex knowledge, there's also a lingering, um, quite actually strong, still very much hold on female sexuality is heavily moralized. And um, there is a double, very obvious double standard of sexuality between men and women. So the normali- uh, sorry, the moralization of female sexuality, creates w- create extra layer of problem for young women who experience uh, premarital sex or uh, or premarital um, pregnancy. So um, this creates basically further complicate uh, the pictures we are looking at. So um, so despite of the school, the lack of. Uh, comprehensive sexual education provided by the school, the young people actually are very adventurous and experimenting uh, the, um, in their private life in terms of there are increasingly um, people engaged in young people engaged in casual sex or non-conjugal sex, commercial sex, and homosexuality. So these uh, the lack of sexual education does not really stop uh, young people's um, different um sort of a sex behavior and experiment in their private life. So this, in, uh, I think particularly, is very, very um, problematic that I think that led to the state to somehow finally, in until March 2017, seventeen, there is was this push of we must provide a safe sex education to school children because we see this kind of rising um issues related to, uh, pre- uh, sorry, teenager pregnancy, all these problems that because children, sorry, young people simply just don't have that knowledge to that match, equip them to deal with issues in their real life. But the, even this kind of, by, by the time of March 2017, when I was writing this chapter, there was still this very strong pushback. Um, from society and from certain segments of uh the government that will still very much hold on to this kind of conservative um, understanding of uh, young people should never have sex before marriage so the the textbook that were being um brought in to school to educate children about safe sex were quick, quickly withdrawed so you can see that I think this incident and show us this ongoing battles between. Uh, moralism versus realism and how um, workers well teachers in schools trying to tackle this uh, particular issue that my chapter is trying to address um, is basically the tension between lived reality versus this kind of moral official discourse and So um, all my participants describe that premarital sex as very common and too normal among couples. but And for them, premarital sex, including cohabitation, could be justified as part of marriage preparation. So it's very interesting that the, everybody talks about if marriage is in prospect, sex is excusable. So you can see that the boundary has been extended um, from strictly sex within marriage to marriage in prospect, So which I think reflects this kind of shifting um, uh Shifting boundaries about young people's attitude towards uh, towards sex, but on the other hand, then they also talk about like marriage is also this most important justification for sex, which is which shows that uh, the importance of heterosexual marriage within the uh, within the Chinese moral landscape to justify um, sex related uh, behaviors. My participants' general tolerance towards premarital sex does not necessarily mean that everyone sees it as a positive thing worth promoting. That's quite interesting, isn't it? Especially for young women, they bear most of the tension between moralism and realism, and they are often blamed when things go wrong. For example, I still remember quite vividly Actually, there were more than one participant. They don't know each other, now, not related, from different parts of China. But they use the same metaphor to, to basically try to explain to me how female rep- um, body can be damaged through premarital sex and or premarital abortion in particular in multiple ways. So if I may just quote what they said about this. And so... These two women, basically, at the same time, they describe that, well, a um, lot of men have female virginity complex. There's a, a popular saying says nowadays, uh, in the past, it is said that you must save your virginity for your husband, uh, whereas now you should guarantee that your first child is your husband, And nobody wants to buy a property that somebody has died in it. So in this case, they are referring to female body who, uh, which had an abortion before marriage, and that is um, regarded as a broken property, therefore has been devalued in the marriage market, and that is not good for the future husband. So I think this, these are, well, the striking metaphor, I think, is used by these uh, women, and it shows that they are the women themselves are fully aware that it's still existing strongly um, this kind of virginity complex and also this kind of, um, very much male-privileged understanding of sex and sexuality that moralize, heavily moralize women's reproductive body and um, um, treating them as uh, male properties. And I think comes out quite strongly in this metaphor. So what um, what does this kind of landscape lead us to? Is this uh, all my participants, no matter whether they are uh, are more sympathetic for premarital abortion of women or they are against it personally. But they all say if marriage is not um, possible um, for the couple, abortion is the only responsible choice and it has to be done in secret. So I think that really highlights that um this, the women's agencies is very much constrained by a moralized discourse of female sexuality and the sexual double standards in the marriage market. And the... Um, and I, I mean, women in this scenario are never powerless victims. And actually, they're actively trying to work out the most programmatic solution for the problems. And I use, because it's still quite, it's, it's still very um, sensitive topic about premarital abortion. So I used the vignette to try to invite my participant to comment on this scenario. So all the solution, the solution they offered is, um, abortion in secrecy is the most responsible choice for the women in the situation. It is responsible not only for herself and in order to, to protect her future marriage prospect. And also it is responsible for the unborn child because if you cannot give a child a so-called happy, uh, complete heterosexual family environment, it is better not to be born so i think the value of life and different challenges of single single parenthood in china also contribute to this such understanding and then also finally these women believe that abortion in secrecy in this scenario also is a responsible choice for her family for her parents for her extended family because they can she can doing so she can protect them from moral judgment of the society so I think, I mean, this is, comes out very clearly that the very constrained landscape um, women's agency trying to operate and how uh, the double uh, standard between in terms of sex condom between women, uh, women and men is very much there and alive. And this constrained kind of this constrained landscape
0: that, that you just described in great detail um, decides the standards of when is the right time for childbirth for a woman. And you go into this topic more in chapter four of your book, where you look at the meaning making around childbearing and the tensions that women face in order to fulfill the social and medical norms around reproduction. Yeah. Can you tell us a bit more about some of these tensions and what role do family members play in safeguarding the naturalization of motherhood? Yeah.
1: I think it's quite interesting. uh, After uh, looking into like people's belief and attitude towards marriage to abortion and the justification they give, is very much leading towards this, pointing us to look at the importance of marriage for these women's future, uh, the perception of their future life. Because marriage is something that that will happen. It has to happen, and it must happen in many ways. But what does marriage actually mean for these women? What does it uh, what does it bring? What kind of function it serves? That is That leads me to uh, the questions I was trying to address in this particular chapter. That is, marriage is very much uh, understood as a site of uh, reproductions. That is a place, the conjugal family, is a site for raising up uh, children. So a motherhood, and very well, motherhood in China is very much understood as not a choice per se, but it's almost, um, I would say, subconsciously is perceived as a duty, probably less... less consciously being perceived as a duty. But everybody I spoke to talk about um, becoming a mother, having a child, not as a choice at all. It, they very much talk, uh, talk about it as, oh, we must, I must have a child for my family. Or, oh, this is not even a question. It's a question out of question with a lot, not I have a child. I must have a child. And so, um, the naturalization of reproduction is as almost becomes a psychological, a uh, psychological instinct, at least for women. In women, uh, and having a child is almost as much as uh, an inevitability of female body as dying. That has come out very strongly in my interview. Um, so all these women talking about this is, this is something that has to happen. It will happen and they will try very, uh, much to make it happen. But this does not mean that there comes with, uh, without any tension, especially, uh, personal struggles in order to reconcile their, uh, their own, uh, wants and desires versus the expectation from them, from their family and uh, society. So um, I think one one um, well one thing I brought out in this chapter is this timing motherhood under intensified pressure, which I think really highlight and uh, reflects the uh, the internalized tension and stress these women has to go through in order to fulfill the multiple expectations on them, uh, to be a so called like. Uh, fulfilled woman and a good daughter and also a good mother in the future so in this chapter i made a, a image which is based on my interview um uh, transcripts that to de- how these women describe different age in their life what they should achieve so um so basically typically a female if you think about a female students finish their undergraduate degree at the age of 22 then they have about five years to secure a career and pin down a husband before being labeled as leftover at the age of 27. If these women are lucky enough to be married by them, they have about three years left to give birth because China has this, has this very strong uh, eugenic uh, belief and um, this kind of inf- a promotion of eugenic uh, understanding of what can counted as good quality birth. Yeah, So that also plays another layer of uh, of uh, pressure on these women to make sure they give birth not too late because uh, the fear of um, not being able to produce a healthy, um, good quality baby is very much a uh, lingering fear among my participants. So if they are lucky enough to be married by the age of 27, they have two, three years to uh, left to give birth before the age of 30, Um and then, at least the at least the first child on the car. Uh well, now the policy has changed to three-child policy. So I guess there is definitely a more intensified pressure there in for them to achieve the target. Um, if, if she does not accomplish all these on time, after the age of 35, which is the age repetitively appeared, presented by my uh, female participant as a, dan- a dangerous age, after that, uh, the common popular perception of age 35 is after that it is very difficult to conceive and to produce good quality children. Yeah. So there is this, um, after the age of 35, if she still have not achieved these. Very often, um, there is this sense of personal failures. And, and being viewed as a social outcast and they have somehow failed being a woman. So this this timeline I mapped out um, in, in the image, I include in my book, I think really highlights the exacerbated pressures women uh, experience and have to go through in order to fulfill all these expectations um, in, in the society. And also more importantly, very um, intimately felt in their family life. That can bring us to uh, talk, discuss a little bit about the role of family members in these women's reproductive decision making. And I think while the authoritarian I think for those of you who are familiar with um, with the Chinese context you know that uh, filial piety is very important very much rooted within the Chinese culture. Although the the the, uh, the, uh, the communist come, came to power and also the econo- economic reform has in many ways uh, reduced the the, the power of authoritarian filiality, which is the parents can dictate what happens to their children. That is very much uh, the practice of the past. But we, we see that a new form of reciprocal family obligations is increasing and is increasingly observed um as a filial practice that the generations of the parents and children are increasingly um building this kind of um uh, codependence and emotional bond and commitment to una- one another i think this is very important for us to understand the role of family members in women's reproductive decision making because the uh, the practice of love within the family within the chinese context very much involves mutual consideration of each other's feelings so there is a, there is a saying in China saying that well um, well the traditional we say um, if you the top priority of of filial piety is carrying on the family bloodline yeah um for the wang child generations uh, women from the wang child generation whether she has a child or not or have children or not is not only about herself it is also about her own family because she does not have a male sibling um, to carry on the family life. but it also very often these women also marry into uh, married to somebody who is also the only child in his family the husband so therefore the, the responsibility laid on her shoulder to reproduce for both families very very heavy and very intimately felt in these women's life. So um, I interviewed um, some women they were talking about even though for themselves they really don't have the urge to have a child any anytime soon but they are fully aware that in order to be an, a loving wife and be a good daughter and this is not a a personal choice is they, um, they can make depends on their personal preference but it's very much a duty and if they love their family if they love their partner they have to have a child for them so I think for me the power of love and the practice of love is very much um important for me to understand how uh, women's dis- uh, reproductive decision-making um, happens within the family door. But On the other hand, it's not only uh, women or children trying to fulfill the parents' wishes in order to give uh, give a grandchild to the family, carry on the family line. Very much this kind of in- um, increased emotional bond between parents and their children, particularly mother and the daughters, also means that mother, the maternal uh the mother of the uh, the woman, the young woman's mother, very often play a very significant role in the decision making with whether or not or when she will have a child or have two children or three now, because we um we know that grandparents, especially grandmother, forms the majority of childcare support within Chinese families when the couple are busy at work, and then. And also this kind of increased emotional bond between mother and their only daughters means that the mothers are often genuinely concerned about their daughter's future fortunes. And then the lack of public um, provision of welfare within Chinese society means that family remains the only... um, the most reliable sort of welfare provision for individuals within Chinese society therefore the mothers of the uh, of the the young women often really trying to make sure their daughter follows the so-called normal life course in order to in some way guarantee the future of their daughter will be somehow secured by having a child in the future to look after them so I think the practice of love comes out very strongly from both dimensions from parent from parents and mother to their daughter and also from children to their parents in order to fulfill their filial uh, duty towards the family. and That all these, um, the practice of love and perception of love means that young women's reproductive decisions are never their own, and it is related to the family, the future of the both sides of the family. Hmm. Really
0: fascinating. Thank you, Kailin. So talk on this theme of love and responsibility and sacrifice. Um, Perhaps we can move into the theme of gendered subjectivity that you that you um, expand on in Chapter five. And in this chapter, you pay particular attention to the neoliberal discourse of a desiring and enterprising self and seeking personal happiness through heterosexual marriage. Can you tell us a bit more about what what are some of the restrictions that these discourses carry and how do they frame an ideal notion of marriage that is both a struggle and a solution for women?
1: Well, for me, this chapter is trying to work out, even though it's such a pain for uh, these women to meet those deadlines, as I discussed in the last chapter, uh, to meet, uh, to fulfill marriage and childbirth expectations, why there are still so many women, young women I interview determined, they're fully determined and committed to achieve these goals. So what drives them? So I'm trying to illustrate and trying to understand this from the, um, to unpack this subjective experience of attempting to embody the exemplary gendered middle-class ideal, and to try to unpack how their personal desires drives uh, them to conform to this very rigid, narrow definition of personal success and happiness. So... um. And I'm trying to also in this chapter discuss the political implication of the gendered construction of sub, uh, subjectivity in contemporary Chinese society, and how their personal uh, subjectivity fit into within the wider governing structure of the state. Okay, how their desires uh, locate within the political agenda of the state. So um, obviously, and as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, the the Chinese, um, the uh, op- the reform and opening up has somehow used, relied upon consumerism to boost economic growth, and the the roots of consumerism. I I, w- I hope that most of us would agree is rely on the personal desires. The de- our desires to be loved, to be wanted, and to be successful in the societal standards is very much drives our consumption habit. So, I think this is a, uh, for me, it's a very important analytical, analytical tool to understand these women's behaviors and choices they made in their uh, private dating uh, life. So, in boarding, um, for, for, for these women I'm looking at, they very much belongs to this cohort of high quality uh, population within Chinese society. Don't forget that they are all well educated, working this kind of very glamorous. Uh, or relatively speaking, glamorous white-collar professions, then therefore their life embodies a high-quality uh, middle-class ideal. And then then they also grow up at a time that China um, is using this kind of neoliberal techniques to foster the belief of, in self-development. And therefore, these women constantly also... Um, uh, how to say, display this kind of understanding of they need to constantly seeking opportunity for self-development in order to better locate themselves within China's fast changing class structure. So um, I think this is important for us to understand um, how they behave in terms of their uh, choices of career and their consumption patterns, as well as their dating practices. So um, all my participants has, in one way or another, display, um, somehow like um, trying to embody what um, um, we would describe as imagined middle-class ideals, whose cultural lifestyles rest upon strong economic foundations. Yeah, and through display of consumptions and through lifestyle choices like traveling and reading books, and it's very much class-based uh, practices in their uh, in their life. That all, but all of these practices rest upon a strong economic foundations. That means that my participants are um, they are determined to secure their privileged social position or through individual effort that leads them to um, basically believe that they must have their own economic um, and independence through paid work. So a lot of them talk about they uh, They go to, um, how to say, evening classes to seek opportunities to better equip themselves in the job market. And then um, they uh, basically uh, engage with all sorts of uh, div- personal development programs in order to um, secure their position and as worthy, complete and superior within China's social order. So become this kind of part of the exemplary norm of success within the Chinese society. So they all believe that um, paid work is very important for them as um, um, to be part of this kind of modern, successful uh, women in society. And then that will enable them to display their value through lifestyle choices and consumption habits, and et cetera, et cetera. so so that is one um, one side of how they construct their self as this kind of um, embodying this middle-class ideal. But on the other hand, in their romantic life, and they all consciously negotiate Love and class in very interesting ways, and that does not really directly challenge the the patriarchal uh, male centered culture and practices in date in, in the dating scene. For example, a lot of my um my participants has talked about and um, that they would um in order to secure her Mr. Right the uh, women need to learn how to sa, jiao. sa jiao in the Chinese in Chinese basically uh, is a strategy that uh, developed as part of a gendered survival strategy in the patriarchal culture that is trying to negotiate in a long-threatening manner to uh, that is a very popular strategy for to for the young women to, to perform their femininities that it often involves behaving a uh, pettishly charming manners by using a childlike tone and voices and play down and not threaten their male counterpart in the dating practice in order to secure their, um, basically, uh, their romantic relationship. So uh, I think this is a very interesting that see that how these women, even though they are very often very privileged and very competitive in their uh, professional life, but in when it comes to the private life, they consciously made the choice to perform their femininity in order to fit in within the existing patriarchal uh, uh, dating culture that does not pose a threat to their male partners. On the other hand, um, I also interviewed uh, their male peers. A lot of them talking about how to, um, their ideal sort of female partners, should not be those who are too materialistic and then they should not be uh, too, how to say, uh, too outgoing in, in the sense of um, having too much social uh, interactions with uh, men outside. And this is a quote, a quote from one of my participants, which basically suggests that they also expect their ideal uh, female partner or marriage partner to be a relatively um, domesticated. That does not really threaten or challenge the existing sort of gendered boundaries of still men are stronger than women, and um, her position within the relationship in in, in many ways need to um, somehow uh, conform to the uh, existing gender regime. So I think, um, I think I what I observed within uh within my uh among my participants is like they are very much consciously trying to uh, cultivate a self a feminine self that fitting fit within the existing patriarchal practice culture but on the other hand they are prof- uh, they also believe that they middle class in um, in, bo- in order to embody this kind of middle class gendered ideal to be successful they also have to be independent economically in order to have a strong economic foundation um to to fulfill their expectation of consumption and lifestyle. And I think it's not hard to see the contradiction within this landscape. And how can you reconcile um, these two and how easy for, uh, women, for young women to really fulfill within this very much constrained uh, structure in order to uh, marry, um, to find a suitable marriage partner for life. So what I see or what I've trying to conclude is that we um, even located in a rather privileged position on the Chinese social ladder, most of my participants display a strong belief in continuous self- betterment as a qualified neoliberal subject and th- who is determined to achieve success in life through their individual uh, efforts. However, the definition of a successful life for women is still very much rooted in this kind of romanticized understanding of happy marriage. And then that relies upon certain uh, rather narrowed um, uh, gendered practices. Um, so, however, this societal perception or personal this is very much deeply gendered. While a man's success is primarily measured by his outward achievement of being a man, man, man provider for and protector of uh, of his family, for women, her success is very much still judged predominantly through her married domestic life. So the more a woman tries, the more likely she would encounter challenges in finding a suitable partner to marry in China's patriarchal marriage market. As she become more successful, the less choices and she would have in terms of the suitable uh, pool of um, partners in the marriage market. Because very much there is still this kind of women marry up um, in Um, whereas men marry down. So if you are already uh, relatively privileged women, your choices is very much limited. That is why I say that marriage for these women is both a solution for their personal problem in order to be perceived as successful in the society. But at the same time, it is a struggle. It is a constant struggle to negotiate and to conform in many ways. And in their private life in order to really find this uh, find a solution within the current structure and i think the the role of the state again is we cannot neglect how family, uh, how the state really continues to rely on family to provide future, uh, the welfare of its population. Therefore, it's very much encouraged such romanticized essentialist understanding of heterosexual marriage as the life goal for many of my participants, both men and women, which I would argue pose particular problem for women I interviewed. Hmm.
0: And and. So far, you've been talking a lot about the goals, the aspirations, these kind of um, subjectivities. But in Chapter 6, you delve more into the gendered experiences of marriage and work. Can you tell our listeners a bit about how work becomes gendered through some of the narratives that you convey in your book? Of course.
1: Well... Gendered stratification, both vertically and horizontally, is nothing new, really. It has been observed widely across culture and different countries. In China, the fast expansion of the service industry under the reform has absorbed large numbers of female employees. In many ways, it has given women a lot of um, Um, occupational choices and um, opportunities. And then such industry also diversified from 1992 to 2006, which created a big demand for well-qualified young professionals to work in high-value-added industries, such as, for example, finances, IT, or telecommunication, etc. So it is within this economic context that uh, my participants enter the job market. So they are privileged through their higher education and accompanied by the mixed influence of marketization and global capitalism with its increasing appreciation of meritocracy at work. So these women all engaged, and those I interviewed, all engaged in types of work that are classifiable as white-collar office-based roles, which is where I focus on my analysis on. So it's this particular type of work. So when it comes to how work is gendered and become gendered space, and they there are multi layered that I can I I'll trying to unpack. So when I was talking um, when I was talking to them about their experience at work. Um, My participants' narratives about their uh, occupational choices very much review the gendered connotations and the perceptions that is uh, there in Chinese society. So the general consensus is that working in education and other customer-facing or supportive roles are better suited to women because of their gendered attributes makes them more so-called, quote, patient, detailed, gentle, and caring, which could better serve others' needs Um, So this is very much a consensus among my my participants. And I will just take one particular example, which is a a male teacher I interviewed. So he is one of the rare male teachers in his schools and also reflects uh, how he talks about his job and I think reflects the prevailing gender norms in education, in school in China. So he says, in teaching, it is definitely true that women outnumber men. It suits women better because they are more patient, caring, and loving. Traditionally, we believe that to be a good teacher is like being a loving mother. I think it's better. And then I ask him, can men not be loving? And Jerry says, well, they could be. But normally, just like the saying goes, Mu, which is strict father, loving mother. That's why we have fewer men working in education. Another important reason is that compared to other jobs like working in a uh, in the government office or commercial institutions, there seems to be an invisible wall between the real society and school. This is what Jerry said. So He says its environment, the school he refers to, is purer for women. As teachers mainly deal with underage innocent students, the environment is less stressful and purer compared to others. You don't need to spend too much energy or time to engage in exhausting social activities, acting like a creep. In order to build up guanxi relationship, that's a Chinese term for relationship, like in other industries, which can be precarious and dangerous, you can have more time and energy for your family. So I think his narrative um, here is quite telling in the sense that it reveals the existing gender boundary between uh, domestic and public space uh, permeating people's consciousness. So his choice of language, as he said, although metaphorically uh, visual visualize how space is understood to have gendered connotations. So he refers to school as a space that guards students and their teachers, presumably female, against the con- contamination and danger of the real outside world that he refers to as within school. Uh, there is a wall called uh, protect them from the outside, real outside world. So the environment is less stressful and pure that what he said as a woman's main contact would be underage, innocent students. So Jerry's also um, contrast it with working in the real society outside the world, such as uh, uh, like uh, government officials or working business, which are mainly male dominated. Therefore it is understood as precarious and dangerous for women. So, um because of the is this exist, uh, exhausting social activities he refers to involved in they might distract women's attention and energy away from their family. So while I was probing further, what does he mean by this like dangerous um, dangerous environment for women and, and, and both him and other participants has uh, has shared with me that this this there is this kind of very um, um well strong work culture in place that very often. Um, in business practices and in other institutions that exploit women's sexuality in order to sustain a heteronormative masculine organizational culture. And then it's very much uh, rely on consuming female sexuality in the business practice to seal deals. And that is, I think, that is what Jerry is referring to in order to uh, protect women uh, to be exposed um, or exposed um, how to say, have too much, let's say, quotation mark, too much contact with within uh, with such male uh, activities that might punish uh, her uh, s- sexual reputation as a decent uh, woman. That can further lead to her disadvantaged position in the marriage market, as I already mentioned that how um, female sexuality still remains um, heavily moralized in the Chinese society. Therefore, defending her, Reputation as a decent, uh, respectable woman is very much, um, is very important for these women. So themselves, a lot of women I interviewed themselves also talk about how they are trying to avoid uh, to engage with this kind of male dominated um, activities in workplace. That is also sadly um, would. Um, means that they also lose promotion opportunities and to uh, because because they cannot or choose not to engage with this kind of male bonding activities that, that can be uh, pose a sort of um risk of their uh, sexual reputation in work they also lose promotion uh, promotion chances and become further marginalized in their workplace so on the other hand there's another interesting thing i observed that even in school like a... Jerry is the, uh, the one of the rare male teachers. So because schools are um, is very much dominated by women because it's per- been perceived as better suited for women, but even within these like uh female dominated spaces, when it comes to promotion, male teachers remain somehow being preferred in the promotion because of this very much rooted understanding of women as weaker sex they are less less capable in terms of in very in some in some, in some way are very silly because they, the example one of my participants gave me was um because uh, g- uh, women cannot carry heavy stuff um, they cannot control effectively uh, how to say protect students when they take out take them out for sort of um Outings, therefore, uh, the school prefer to promote male teachers to to a more pro- important roles and uh, to take more responsibility. And another reason for uh, women's disadvantaged position in the workplace in terms of promotion is the cost of maternity. Uh, maternity. So in terms of um, the how the school or different work unit to have to cover uh, the cost of um, women go on maternity leave is very much. Um, a part of the concern or rejection of promoting women. And I have witnessed a growing sort of uh, this kind of rising trend of um, women's uh, the discrimination women uh, experience since the change of, uh, how to say, the replacement of one-child policy with policy that um Um, expect women to have more than uh, one or two children nowadays. So it's very much uh, part of the daily encounter of women I uh, interviewed. So this is, even though the Chinese law um, prohibits such discrimination, but in practice, there are so many different loopholes that um, different organizations put in place to ensure the cost of maternity is not, um, uh, how to say, uh, um, they don't have to pay for this. Therefore, women are very much marginalized and, and discriminated against in the workplace. So even in those places, uh, women are presumably better suited like schools um, and service industries. So I think that um, all these come together create a very much um, gendered workforce Culture and workspace that consolidate a male-centered public, uh, the space that restrict women's career progressions from recruitment to promotion, and that the multiple pull and push factors come together to place these women um, in this very disadvantaged position at work. Yeah, thank
0: you. That was really fascinating. Um, moving to the conclusion of your book. In this conclusion, you describe the contradictions that Chinese privileged women live in, and um, you draw on the hope of illuminating the constraints that Chinese women need to cast off in order to seek an egalitarian society. Um, perhaps, Kailin, you could tell us a bit more about how you envision this kind of egalitarian future of drawing on the research that you've collected over the years.
1: Well, My whole book and also my ongoing research is basically trying to illuminate that how gender and this especially gender in terms of heterosexual culture is part of this very powerful governing regime within Chinese society that is rooted within this essentialist understanding of the differences between men and women that leave very little room for critical uh, re- evaluation of gender practices. So I think um, through my book, I was trying to present, and even among those who are privileged in the Chinese society, gender inequality remains a massive hurdle for individuals to, who want to live a fulfilled life outside the societal norms. So. And also in, in China, on top of the so, uh, social and cultural norms around masculinity and femininity that governs people's behavior and restrain their personal choices, the role of the state is very significant in achieving, um, how to say, in creating such a structure that either could uh, become hurdle or trying to or can become can facilitate the um, to in achieving an egalitarian future. So for me such a future means that we really need to have a complete rejection of the essentialist understanding of gender and sex as the significant category of human life yeah why we take uh, why um so how can why gender is so important in our still very much important category to categorize you and me as individual why not our hair color for example so I think one um I think we really need to work out a way to queer gender and family practices in order to challenge the single meaning of a fulfilled life. So if one day for me we can um, sit here and talk about gender differences as if we are talking up if we are talk about we are talking about the color of our hair or the pair of shoes you and me choose choose to wear today, I think we would have achieved our goal. So to make it less a significant Demarcator of our uh, subjectivity, and that uh, categorize shape our life chances. Whereas for China, I think the state will need to really reevaluate its long political tradition of linking governing the country and go- governing the family, which will be a long and painful process, in my opinion, if ever imaginable. Thank you, Kai Ling. That's that's a lot to think about, and. Um... And it really
0: draws on your work. And and, um, I wanted to ask you more about um, what you've been working on now that you mentioned just now briefly, a lot of... embodying middle-class gender aspirations, Um, the objectives of this book are continuous in your current project. And um, I'd really love to hear more about um, what it is that you're working on and how you continue to kind of pursue this idea of egalitarian society through gender.
1: Well, I think um, in my current book, and I think the gender aspiration is very much my... uh, sort of exploration of how take a Foucauldian approach to power to see how power works effectively through our pers- uh, individual subjectivities and also our, more importantly our personal desires and want so I think this monograph builds a foundation for my uh, current research project that i trying to further link the familial norms and the family practice to state governance in contemporary Chinese society and to evaluate its global impacts as we see China rise on the global stage. So my current project is titled as Politics of Love, Emotional Governance Under Familial Nationalism in China's New Era, which I aim to understand the ways the Chinese party state is trying to win and shape the hearts and soul of the Chinese people through the lens of gender and to investigate the reproduction of social reproduction of the Chinese nation under its current leader which I believe is hopefully both timely and important, given our current political climate around the world. I can definitely assure that it is both timely and important,
0: Kailin. That sounds like a fantastic project. Um, I really look forward to hearing and reading more about it as it unfolds, as I imagine so do our listeners. But for now, I want to thank you so much, Kailin, for putting time aside and joining us to talk about your work
1: today. Well, thank you so much, Suvi, and um, for this fantastic opportunity for me to share my work. And um, it's a great pleasure to be here today. Thank you, Kailing, And thank you
0: also to our listeners for tuning into New Books and Chinese Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Have a great week, everyone. Goodbye.